Well, it's great to have you guys with us this morning. We're in week two of our three-week series going through the entire Bible. So last week we went from Genesis 1 to Genesis 22. This week we're going to go from Genesis 23 to the end of Malachi. So the entire Old Testament minus 23 chapters. I've had a lot of coffee this morning, so I think this is going to go well. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. If you remember what we talked about last week, the goal during these three weeks is to introduce you to the one grand story of the Bible. 66 books in here, but one big story about what God is doing. And we took this big story and we divided it into nine chapters, nine words that you can see up on the stage or in the diagram that we have created. But as you can see from these words, not all of them are equal. There's one that stands above all the others, and that's the name of Jesus. We're going to get to him next week. Everything that we looked at last week, creation, revolt, and promise, looks forward to Jesus. Everything we'll look at this week, law, king, and hope, it looks forward to Jesus. Next week, we'll look at Jesus, and then we'll see that everything after, the church and shalom, it looks back at Jesus because Jesus is the center of history. I love the passage that Trey J. read just a little while ago. Where Jesus walked them all the way through the prophets in the Old Testament. It's all about him. So he's the center of the story. You might remember that last week we began with the, what we might call the botched beginning. Those first three chapters of the biblical story, they began on a great note. Creation, the first chapter, it's about God's loving creation of the earth as a gift for the human race. It was about how God created humanity in his own image to rule his world for his glory. This chapter was all good news. In fact, it was very good. It's all about God's love. But then we botched things up. In the second chapter, the chapter of revolt, the human race chose pride. We chose to revolt against God's plan. And the result is that sin and death enter the human race. Sin breaks creation. Sin breaks us. It enters the human heart. And as a result, humanity experiences death in all of its forms. And yet, do you remember the incredibly good news? In the midst of God's curse upon sin, God promises there will be a male descendant of Eve, a son, who will crush Satan and defeat sin once and for all and die in the process. And that was the first promise of the gospel. It was just the the beginning, the seed of that promise that God will fix what we had broken. And that solution begins in the third chapter, the chapter of promise. When God made an extravagant promise to a man named Abraham, a promise that becomes the Abrahamic covenant, the first big of four covenants in the Old Testament that outline God's plan of redemption. He makes incredible promises to Abraham. He promises him land, everything from the Nile River to the Euphrates. He promises him seed, meaning many, many descendants, and he promises him blessing. God is going to bless him in every way. And the greatest promise of all, he says, in you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Every family will be blessed through your family. And so now we know you can think of the Old Testament like a funnel. At first, it's any son of Eve who is going to crush Satan. Now we know it's a son of Abraham. 
God has narrowed it down to one family. From this family will come the promised son who in his death will defeat our enemy once and for all. So we had these amazing promises to the family of Abraham. When Abraham obeys God, God seals those, those promises as an irrevocable covenant. No matter what his descendants do, it will never be taken away. And the rest of the story of the Bible is really about God fulfilling that promise. The Abrahamic covenant promise is the storyline of the rest of the Bible. God begins to fulfill it. Very quickly, we, we pass Abraham and enter into a time period. Let's start to fill in a timeline I'm going to give you of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Abraham is born around 2166 B.C. Okay, so we, we have a date there. We know when he's born. And he kicks off what we call the age of the patriarchs, the, the fathers of the nation of Israel. So we're talking about Abraham and then his son Isaac and then his son Jacob and then Jacob's 12 sons who become the nation of Israel for 290 years. Those are the events of the book of Genesis. So the rest of Genesis is about the patriarchs, these immediate descendants of Abraham and how God worked in and among them. At the end of Jacob's life, towards the end of the book of Genesis, there's a famine in the promised land. And so God delivers his people by moving them to Egypt, where at first things go great. They're given a great plot of land in Egypt. They're given peace and security and they prosper and they multiply. But then after a while, the Egyptians take notice. These Israelites are doing well. We better do something about it. And so they enslave them. And the Israelites fall into slavery for almost 400 years. So 430 years, they're in Egypt. Most of that time is horrible. It's cruel. They're oppressed. They're slaves. And they begin to call out for God to do something. And and that's where we pick up the story this week. We're going to look at at the events from when God sends a deliverer to the Israelites in Egypt. And we might call this the messy middle of the Bible. If you're into Star Wars, this is the Empire Strikes Back. This is the middle of the trilogy. It is largely dark. Lots and lots of bad news. And yet in the midst of all of this darkness, God is still at work. God is doing things among his people in this messy time as he prepares the way for Jesus, who all of this is ultimately about. So let's pick it up in chapter 4. We call this the chapter of the law. Okay, so you can go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 28. If you have a Bible in front of you, Deuteronomy 28, we're going to read that in a few minutes. So, the Abrahamic covenant, man, it's an amazingly great thing. A wonderful promise that God makes to Abraham. There is, however, one big problem with the Abrahamic covenant. There's one big deficiency, one thing it is lacking. The Abrahamic covenant did not give Israel a way to access the blessings that belong to them. Let let me explain that in more detail. I want you to think about Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. All these guys had been promised the land, all the land from the Nile River to the Euphrates. Did any of them have that land? No. They actually, they own no land. Why? Because they sinned? No. Simply because God had not yet provided the family of Abraham with a process by which they could cash in on the blessings that legally belong to them. I like to think of it this way. The Abrahamic covenant is like a $1 million trust fund that parents give to a five-year-old. That's a lot of money. It's up in a bank. It's wonderful. What can that five-year-old do to enjoy his million dollars? Nothing. 
He has no process, no way to cash in on this amazing treasure that belongs to him. So it is with Abraham's family. They have no process. They have no way to cash in on the blessings God has promised them so that they can enjoy them in their lifetime. That's why 400 years after Abraham, where's his family? Slaves in Egypt. Why? Had they sinned? No. Slavery in Egypt was through no fault of their own. It was simply happening because God had not yet given them a process, a way to access or enjoy these amazing covenant blessings that belong to them. That gets fixed in the next covenant, the next chapter of our story, when God gives Moses a new covenant. And so, a little bit of the story. God sends Moses to deliver the nation of Israel. We're talking around 1446 B.C. Moses goes down to Egypt and he brings power with him. And God does these big things, the whole plagues, and then he divides the sea. And he leads the Israelites out of Egypt and south into a wilderness area where there was a mountain. It's called Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, God comes and he sits with Moses face to face. And for 40 days, God reveals the Mosaic Covenant, which we call the law. Okay, so Mosaic Covenant and law, it's the same thing. And so we're going to read a little bit of the law. It's actually very extensive. It's the books Exodus through Deuteronomy. We obviously can't read all of that. We're just going to read a little piece of it. If you look with me in Deuteronomy chapter 28, starting in verse 1. This is Moses speaking. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. So Moses has just given them page after page of rules. And then he says, if you obey them, you get blessed. But look down at verse 15. Verse 15, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the country. Now let's, let's turn the page, a couple pages, go to chapter 30. Moses kind of draws everything together to a big summary. This is a big finish. Chapter 30, verse 15. See, Moses says, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. And that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply. And that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. This is exactly what the Abrahamic covenant was missing. Now they know what to do to enjoy Abrahamic covenant blessings in their lifetime. So you can think of the Mosaic covenant or the law as the rules that the nation of Israel had to follow to enjoy Abrahamic covenant blessings in their lifetime. So the Abrahamic covenant, it was unconditional, and that was actually a bad thing. It didn't give you any conditions to follow to get to cash in on God's blessings. There's nothing you could do, no process. The Mosaic covenant fixes that. 
It tells you all the conditions in really clear detail. Exactly what you had to do to cash in right now on all of those Abrahamic covenant blessings so you can enjoy them in your life. So the Abraham or the Mosaic covenant is a gift. It gives them the ability to know exactly what to do to enjoy Abrahamic covenant blessings. Now, we have to pause for a moment and clarify because this is so often misunderstood. The law is not at all about heaven or hell because salvation is always by faith alone. We just sang a few minutes ago about how the love of God has no conditions. That's correct. God's love welcoming you into the family, eternal life, salvation, all of that is a free gift. There's no conditions at all. Nothing you do to earn that. Okay, so for Moses and all who came after them, If they simply receive that free gift, then they're in God's family. They're going to heaven when they die, no matter what happens with the law. But God wanted more than just heaven for them. God wanted them to enjoy the Abrahamic covenant blessings in this life so that they could be a nation that glorifies him. Well, to enjoy the Abrahamic covenant blessings in this life, faith alone wasn't enough. You had to obey to get blessed in this life. That's what the law fixes for you. So salvation is always by faith alone. The law plays no part in that. The law is giving them a choice. How do I get blessed by God in this life through the Abrahamic covenant? I have to obey. If I don't, I'm going to get cursed instead. So the law, these rules that God gives to Israel to tell them what they have to do to enjoy his blessings, it is extensive. If you've ever read these books, there are a lot of rules They break down generally into three parts. So there's three kinds of rules God gives. First of all, you have a lot of civil laws. Laws that regulate the economics of Israel, the justice system of Israel, the immigration policy of Israel, all kinds of things. Even building codes are legislated by the law. So you can think of the Mosaic law, the civil laws are really the constitution for the nation of Israel. It's like the U.S. Constitution. It makes them their own distinct nation. Here's one example. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land and your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets. It tells you as a business owner exactly what you have to do and when you have to do it. The law spelled out everything about your civil, economic, and business life. So you had civil laws. Second, you had ceremonial laws. That told you as a Jew how to practice your religion, how to do Judaism. Here is one example. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. The ceremonial laws regulated all parts of Judaism, all parts of the Jewish religion, including the sacrificial system, the priests, the temple, the garments they wore, all of that stuff. Now, when you look at this in the sacrificial system, it's important to clarify. These animal sacrifices didn't take away sin. Animals can't do that. Only Jesus can do that. We'll look at that next week. What were these animal sacrifices about? They were about following the rules so you could enjoy Abrahamic covenant blessings in your lifetime. Now, why did God pass all these rules? You've got to go kill these lambs. And then another passage, God says you can't eat bacon. Another passage, he says you can't mix the fibers in your garment. Why all these ceremonial rules? Well, to set the nation of Israel apart. It's not because God doesn't like bacon. It's because he wanted the Jewish nation to be distinct, to look different from every other nation. So all other nations on earth would say, there's something odd there. I want to know more about this nation. I want to know more about the God that they serve and the religion that they practice. All these ceremonial laws were about making Israel distinct 
from the rest of the world so the rest of the world would come closer to God by looking at them. Okay, so you have all of these ceremonial laws. And then the third part, and most important part, you have a lot of moral laws. So this is uh, epitomized by the Ten Commandments, the famous moral laws of Israel. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder, not commit adultery, not steal, not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet. Those are the Ten Commandments. They're a summary of all the moral laws of Israel, of the Mosaic Covenant. They regulate your relationship to God and your relationship to your neighbor. So when you look at the law, it has all these rules. And the first question that comes to most of our minds when we study the law is, is it for us? Is this Mosaic law, all of these rules that regulate all of life, is it still in effect for us Today, well, um, let me ask you, you just raise your hand. How many of you have eaten bacon? What's funny is that some of you didn't raise your hands. And I think, really? Um, I have homework for you. <laughs> you really should try bacon. It's pretty good. <laughs> it's okay for us to eat bacon. Why? Because we are not Israel. We are the church. We live after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the law does not apply to us. The law was only for Old Testament Israel before the death of Jesus, before the cross. Okay, so the law is not for us. It's for them. It, we'll find out next week how it is that the law no longer applies to us. For now, the key is to know all this law was for them and all of it was a gift. And that's important for us to say because a lot of times we read the New Testament and we walk away with this idea that the law was a bad thing. What you really want is grace. You don't want law. No, 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 no. The law, the Mosaic Covenant in and of itself, it was actually an incredible gift to Israel. It was a gracious gift. Why? Because now finally... An Israelite knew exactly what he or she had to do any particular day of the week to please God and cash in on those incredible Abrahamic covenant promises that belong to him. It's a wonderful thing. It's so much better to live under the law than without the law for Old Testament Israel. Now they had a choice. The law gives them choice. You could choose to obey and be blessed or disobey and be cursed. Now, unfortunately, if you've read the Old Testament, you know which side of the equation they spent most of their history on, right? Most of it was on the disobey and get cursed side. Sadly, they don't do well. It turns out that knowledge alone isn't enough. It's not enough to just know what to do. You have to want to do it because humans do what they want to do. And so if you don't want to obey it, you're not going to obey it. And that's the story of the Old Testament. The law, you see, it had one big deficiency too. It fixed a deficiency in the Abrahamic covenant, but it introduced a new deficiency. The law did not give them the desire to obey. It told them exactly what to do, but it didn't make them want to do it. And if you don't want to do it, you're not going to do it. God actually told them, this is what's going to happen. He warned them, Deuteronomy chapter 5, this is God himself speaking. Oh, that they, the Israelites, had such a heart in them. Heart in Hebrew, it means desire. Oh, that they had such a desire in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. That's an emotional verse. You should hear God grieving over this. He is grieving that his people Israel, they know what to do, but they don't have the heart. They don't have the desire to do it. 
And because of that, they don't obey. (coughs) From Moses on, they continue to disobey God. They don't follow the law. And as a result, none of them receive all of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. And so that brings us back to the big question. Who is going to be this promised descendant of Eve who will be a son of Abraham, who will crush Satan and bring an end to sin and bring all of God's blessings into our lives? Well, it's got to be someone who's going to obey. It's got to be a son of Eve, a son of Abraham, who will fully obey the law. And so actually, from the moment the law is given, this moment, from this point on, the rest of the Old Testament is basically a waiting game. You're waiting to see who's going to be the guy who will finally obey. Who is it that will finally meet all of these rules and receive all of God's blessings? It's not Moses. He blew it. Like He killed a guy. He did some bad stuff. Moses' generation doesn't go great. So let's, let's hop back onto our timeline and see where we are. So Egypt, 430 years, most of those in slavery. Then Moses comes. The Exodus happens in 1446 BC. That's when he leads them out of Egypt. They receive the law, and then Moses leads them to the border of the promised land and says, go in, and they say no. They're not going to trust God. And so God curses that generation, just as the law said. You don't walk with me, you don't obey, you get the curse. And so they're cursed by dying in the wilderness. After that generation, a new leader comes, Joshua, and he does better. His generation goes into the promised land around 1406 BC, but they're still not perfect. They compromise with sin many times, and it sets up lots of failures in the future. And after Joshua, the very next generation forgets the goodness of God. And chooses to worship idols. And that kicks off the darkest period in Israel's history. We call it the Judges. The period of Judges is a cycle. A horrible cycle. Israel chooses idolatry. And as a result, God brings curse. Just as he promised. In the midst of the curse, they cry out for help. God sends a deliverer, whom we call a judge. That judge delivers them. And what do they do next? Right back to idolatry. It's a cycle over and over again of incredible violence. It's a horrible time in Israel's history, and it leads us to the next chapter of our story. So the chapter of the law is complete. Now it's time for the chapter of the king. The nation of Israel gets tired of those cycles of judgment in the judges, and so they cry out for a king to lead them. Now you can go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel 7. We're going to read that in just a moment. 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Israelites cry out for a king that's kind of an insult to God because God was their king up to this time, but God is not enough for them. They want a king like all the other nations. They want to be strong like all the other nations, and so they want exactly what God doesn't want for them. He wants them to be distinct and different so nations will be drawn to them. They say, no, we won't be like everybody else. We want a king, and so God says, all right, I'll give you a king, and the first king I'll give you is exactly the king you want. I'm going to give you a king after your own heart. In other words, he matches up with your desires, and that's a king named Saul. He doesn't do well. Saul chooses pride, and as a result, God sets him aside, and God chooses a second king, a better king, a king after 
his own heart. And that's David. We're told in 1 Samuel 13, David is a man after God's own heart. Famous phrase. What does it mean? It means David's heart or David's desires are in line with God's desires. David wants what God wants. His priorities are God's priorities. And nowhere is that clearer than in 2 Samuel 7. So this is a very, very famous chapter of the Bible. Look with me. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now it came about when the king, that is David, lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, meaning basically a big mansion, a palace, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your mind for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build a house, me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me when he commits iniquity. I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I've removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This is a promise we call the Davidic covenant. It's our third big covenant in the Old Testament. This covenant begins in an ironic way. David says, hey, this doesn't seem right to me that I live in a palace of cedar. Nicest house you can get. And God lives in a tent. Just a little background. God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. But in the Old Testament, he caused his special glory, his Shekinah glory to dwell in a tent. It's a fancy tent. It was called the tabernacle. Israel built it for him. It could be moved all around. It was fine with God, but David says, this doesn't seem right that you're in a tent and I'm in a palace. That, that doesn't seem to be high enough for you. I want you to be glorified, so I want to build you the best house that's ever been made, this beautiful temple. How does God respond? Well, God is honored by that. I, I never said anything about this. This is just your free will. You're wanting to create this for me. That's where you see David's heart is, is after God's own heart. He wants God's glory. But God says, it's not going to be you who builds the house. That's because David was a man of war. He had expanded the nation of Israel militarily. God says, no, it'll be a man of peace who builds my house. But here's the deal, David. Because you wanted my worship, I am going to reward you by turning the tables. You're not going to build my house. I'm going to build your house. 
And so God promises this amazing covenant promise to David. He says to David, I'm going to do these amazing things. And when you look at this Davidic covenant promise, it's a lot like the Abrahamic covenant. This Davidic covenant is very much like the Abrahamic covenant. There's no conditions in it. It is an unconditional promise covenant. And in this promise covenant, God promises that to David, he's going to give a house. That's just a fancy way of saying descendants. David, you're always going to have sons. You will always have male descendants. And he says to David, I'm going to give you the throne, meaning your descendants will always have the right to rule, the authority to be my king, my ruler on earth. And finally, he gives to David a kingdom. David, you're always going to have a kingdom of Israel to rule over, a nation to rule. And so this promise of house, throne, and kingdom, it's ultimately a promise that David's lineage would always have the right to rule Israel. This covenant, though, it also includes blessing for the whole nation of Israel. Because God says it will be your family, your lineage, that will bring Israel to its place, that will plant Israel in security and peace and prosperity so that all the nation is blessed through you. So, Now we know, again, think of the Old Testament like a funnel. This son who would perfectly obey the law and crush the head of Satan and bring deliverance from sin. At first, he's just a son of Eve. That's any male. Then he's a son of Abraham. Now he's a son of David. That's why when you read the New Testament and see son of David over and over and over and over, that's why. Because the funnel's gotten narrow. It's going to be a son of David who will finally perfectly obey the law, who will be the one to bring God's promises to fulfillment. So we've learned a lot from this covenant. It has narrowed the funnel, just like the Abrahamic covenant. This covenant is irrevocable. It's never going to be removed from David. It, God says explicitly, even if your sons disobey me, I won't take the covenant away like I did from Saul. I took him and his family off the throne. I'll never do that to you guys. You will always have the right to rule the nation of Israel. It's irrevocable, but there is a problem with the Davidic covenant. So far, all three covenants have a problem. The Davidic covenant's problem is it was given after the law. And because it's given after the law, if you're going to enjoy the blessings of this covenant, what must you do? Just like the Abrahamic covenant, you have to obey the law. So think of it this way. Here's the Abrahamic covenant. Here's the Davidic covenant. They're up in the bank. They belong to the nation of Israel. They are full of treasure. They're incredibly wonderful, gracious promises up here in the bank. What do you have to do to cash in? Well, the same thing for both of them. You got to obey the law. It's always the law you have to go through. That sounds great until you realize what? The law doesn't give you the desire to obey. It tells you what to do, but not, gives, not transforms your heart so that you will want to obey. The result is no Israelite makes it through the test of the law to fully enjoy the Abrahamic or Davidic covenant promises. You had to obey the law to enjoy the Davidic covenant blessings, meaning that David's sons had to obey if they were going to cash in and enjoy the Davidic covenant promises in their lifetime. And sadly, they don't. They don't. And so as a result, God brings discipline in their lives and even removes part of the nation and the whole nation from them for a time. So when you think about how the Old Testament plays out from this point forward, you, you have David... And he doesn't do great, right? Second Samuel 7, that's a high point in David's life. Right after this, what's he going to do? He's going to have an affair and then kill the husband. So adultery and murder, those are pretty big sins, right? 
So now we know, David, you're not going to be the promised descendant of Eve, descendant of Abraham, who's going to fix our sin problem because you have your own sin problem. Okay, so David can't be the one. Now, God doesn't remove the throne from him. He doesn't remove the covenant. And that begs a question for us. Why did God take the throne from Saul, but not David? It wasn't because of the severity of sin. So David, what did he do? Adultery and murder, pretty big up there, right? What did Saul do? All Saul did was offer a sacrifice he wasn't supposed to offer. It's as small as that. Saul was going to war. He had his army with him. He was required by the law to offer a sacrifice to God before he went in. But it wasn't supposed to be him who actually did the sacrifice. It was supposed to be Samuel. But Samuel was late. And Saul sees his troops leaving out of fear. And so Saul says, all right, I can't wait for Samuel anymore. I'm just going to do the sacrifice myself. Now let's go to war. Talk about a tiny sin. Tiny. And so why does God take the throne from Saul, but not David, who committed a sin that seemed so much bigger. Well, it's all about how they responded when they were found out. Both men were found out. Their sin was exposed. Here's what Saul says when his sin is discovered. Samuel said to Saul, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. What is that? That is an excuse. He's giving excuses. He's blaming it on Samuel. It's your fault, not mine. Here's what David does when his sin is discovered. Psalm chapter 51. Be gracious to me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, and blameless when you judge. What is that? That's humility. David humbles himself before God and confesses his sin. And that is the difference. That's why David keeps the throne and Saul doesn't. And there's a lesson there for us. In life, it is not about the gravity of your sin, but the response to conviction. That is so important because what we tend to do is weigh the relative gravity of our sin. Oh, I feel good about myself because my sin is light. I feel bad about you because yours is heavy. That's not at all how it works with God. Sin is sin. What matters is how you respond after the fact. Do you respond like Saul and make excuses, blame others? Or do you respond like David and humble yourself and confess your sin before the Lord? If you will confess before the Lord, God can still use you. And just like he still used David, even after his massive sins. So, a lesson for us there. So, David is not the guy who can solve our sin problem because he has all these sins in his own life. After David dies, his son Solomon takes over. So, if you look at where we're at, Saul reigned for 40 years. David reigned for 40 years. Solomon reigned for right about 40 years. Solomon started well. He asked God for wisdom. God provided. Solomon was a great king until he gave in to lust. He gave in to lust, and that led him to give in to idolatry. And unlike his dad, David, he didn't repent of it. He didn't humble himself before God. He kept walking to the end of his days in lust and idolatry. And God says, okay, because of this sin, I'm going to give you exactly what I promised. You're going to get a curse. But because I love David, your dad, so much, it won't come in your lifetime. It'll come upon your son, Rehoboam. God uses Rehoboam's foolishness to divide the kingdom. So in 931 BC, the nation of Israel as we knew it ends. It divides into two new nations. 
confusingly, the one to the north is still called Israel, but it's a new nation. It's the ten tribes of the north. It's Israel. It's led by all bad kings. Every single one of them is idolatrous. The nation left to the south is now called Judah. It's the two southern tribes. Had a few good kings, mostly bad kings. Throughout this dark history of of Israel, we call it the divided kingdom era. Israel most of the time is walking in idolatry. And so as a result, God does exactly what the law promised. He brings the curse upon them, and that curse comes in the form of exile. God sends empires into Israel to conquer them. So for the north, it's the Assyrian Empire. In 722 BC, they wipe out the nation of Israel and lead all the survivors into exile in other parts of the kingdom. The southern kingdom, because it had a few good kings, it lasted a little longer, but it eventually is conquered by the Babylonian kingdom around 586 BC and led off into exile. And so this era of biblical history, what we call the era of the kings, it is dark. Because of their sin, their own disobedience has crushed them under the consequences of the Mosaic law. And yet in the midst of that darkness, God gives hope. And that's our next chapter. Chapter 6, God promises hope. In the midst of all of that darkness, God promises a new covenant that will give his people hope even in their darkest days. Go ahead and turn to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. This chapter, what we call hope, it's about God doing something new, this new covenant. Remember for a moment, just think for a moment, what was that problem with the Mosaic law? The Mosaic covenant, it told you what to do, but it didn't give you what? It didn't give you a desire to obey. It didn't give you the heart to obey God. And again, humans do what humans want to do because they didn't want to obey. They didn't obey. And as a result, they always got the curse. They never got the blessings. So God says in this passage, he is going to do something new, something completely new. He's going to give a new covenant that is a better covenant. So look with me in verse 31, Jeremiah 31, verse 31. This was written around 600 BC. God is promising a new and better covenant. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers and the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is a covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. This new covenant, it's given because they broke the old covenant. What is that covenant that they broke? That's a Mosaic covenant. What God is saying is that that covenant that you broke, the Mosaic covenant, there's no fault with the covenant. You're the fault. You broke it. But out of grace for you, what I'm going to do is I'm going to replace that old covenant you cannot keep, and I'm going to give you a new and better covenant you can. So this new covenant replaces the old Mosaic covenant. There is no point in biblical history in which both the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant are operating. They can't be at the same time. When the new covenant starts, it will replace the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. This new covenant not only will replace the old covenant, but it's better than the old covenant in every way. Notice Jeremiah says this new covenant, it brings forgiveness. 
For all of the sins you committed under that old covenant, it washes them all away. Finally brings you complete forgiveness. And better than the old covenant, where are the laws of the new covenant written? Inside us. Not on tablets of stone. Mosaic covenant, all the laws were written over here on a tablet of stone outside of you. You could read them so you'd know what to do, but they didn't transform you. They didn't give you the desire to obey. But God says, now I'm going to write them on your heart. That's a metaphorical way of saying, I'm going to put my laws in you so that you will naturally want to do what I want you to do. The new covenant is the promise to fix what was broken in the old covenant, what was lacking in the old covenant. We get more information from Ezekiel 36. I'll just put it on the screen here. Our second big passage about the new covenant. God says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, those new desires, and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes so that you will be careful to observe my ordinances." You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. This new covenant that Ezekiel promises. Did you notice how that began? What's God's motivation? Why does he want to give him a new cup? He's already given him three. Why this fourth one? To vindicate the holiness of his name. To glorify himself. That takes us all the way back to the very beginning. What was the big idea of the Bible? All the way over here in creation, God desires to glorify himself by establishing his kingdom on earth through humanity. But humanity had blown it. And so God says, I'm about to do a new thing, give you a new covenant that will finally bring about my glory on earth. Why? Because it will fix you. The new covenant promises amazing spiritual blessings. There's a lot of them, but we can kind of lump them together into the three big ones. So three new big spiritual promises of the new covenant. You will finally have complete forgiveness for sin. You will have a new heart, meaning new desires inside you. You will be motivated to obey. And finally, God's own spirit will come to live within them. So incredible, wonderful spiritual promises. There's also a lot of physical promises. The nation of Israel has promised that Israel and Judah will be reunited and returned to their land. They will finally have all the land they were promised. They'll have prosperity of crops and vines and in every way. And you keep reading Ezekiel and you find out they'll have fertility and peace and safety and everything they've wanted. So this new covenant, what is it doing? Well, when you stop and you look at these physical promises, you may notice none of them are new. The physical promises of the new covenant are what they had been promised all the way back with Abraham. You're going to have peace. You're going to have all this land. You're going to have fertility and prosperity. You're going to have fame. All of that was promised long ago, but they kept missing out. Why? Because they never kept the test of the law. They never obeyed the requirement of the law. So they missed out on those physical promises. So what is the new covenant doing? It is finally providing the spiritual promises they needed. To be able to cash in on all the blessings 
promise to Abe. So you could put it this way. The new covenant is how God will fulfill all of his covenant promises to Israel. It's the how, it's the way. The new covenant will finally provide the spiritual transformation required for God's people to keep God's rules so that they can enjoy all of God's blessings in this life. The new covenant is the solution they had been waiting for. The new covenant will finally cleanse them of all sin and bring an end to sin so that they can be God's people and he can be their God. And that's a way of saying they can be close again. They can walk together again because sin will be finished when the new covenant is fully in effect. And so what that's telling us is a new covenant is ultimately how God gets humanity back to the garden. What did the human race do every day in the garden? Walk with God in the cool of the day. Walk with, like right there. Hey God, you're right with God. Why could you do that? Because there was no sin. No sin at all to separate you from God. The new covenant is what gets us back to the garden. It's what finally solves the sin problem so that we can walk with God again. The new covenant is a solution to all that sin has broken. This new covenant is the best covenant of all by far. And yet there is one thing that's different about the new covenant compared to the other three. It did not begin yet. The other three covenants began the moment they were revealed. Abraham, he's told about this covenant. It begins right there on the spot. Moses, he's given a covenant, begins on the spot. David, he's given a covenant, begins on the spot. New covenant, doesn't. Jeremiah and Ezekiel, it's all prophecy. It's all God telling us what he'll do in the future. It does not begin in 600 BC. It's promised, but doesn't start. And so at this point in time, the rest of the Old Testament from 600 BC to the New Testament comes, what covenant are they still under? They're still under the Mosaic covenant. The new covenant is a hope they have in the future, but they don't have it yet. They're still under the Mosaic covenant. They must obey if they're going to enjoy God's blessings They must obey the law. And that is actually the the word that the Old Testament ends on. So let me share with you the very last chapter of the Old Testament. You're welcome to turn there if you want. I'll put it on the screen. It's the book of Malachi chapter 4. So this is how the Old Testament ends. This is the last thing God says before 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and New Testament. God says, For behold, the day is coming burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. It is more than ironic that the actual last word of the Old Testament is what? Curse. Because that's what most of the Old Testament is. It's Israel being cursed because they wouldn't obey. God promises a new day is coming. 
It's called the day of the Lord. That phrase is frequent in the Old Testament. There's a day of the Lord coming when God will finally send this promised son of Eve, son of Abraham, son of David, who will perfectly obey the law. And when that one comes, God's going to do something big. Actually, two somethings. What are the two things God's going to do? He's going to destroy the wicked and deliver the righteous. Destroy the wicked and deliver the righteous. Now, of those two options, which would you prefer? Probably the deliverance, right? So, what do you have to do to get the deliverance part? What do you have to do to to be called righteous when he shows up? Well, I underlined it. You must obey the law. So, law is still operative. If you want to enjoy the blessings that this son of Eve, son of Abraham, son of David will bring when he comes to earth, you must obey the law. Unfortunately, they did not. As Malachi goes silent, the Old Testament closes. And we have 400 years of history between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it is, what do you think? Dark. Whole thing's dark for Israel. They return from exile. They come back to their land, but they're never in charge. Because they continue to sin, they continue to experience curses. And so they become just pawns in the hands of a succession of world empires. It's Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia, then it'll be Greece and Syria, and then Rome. One kingdom after another crushes Israel because they continue to sin. And so as the testaments close and you enter into this dark period, what Israel needs above all else is for this promised man to show up. The son of Eve, son of Abraham, son of David, who would finally perfectly obey the law and and ascend as their king of kings and bring them the gift of the new covenant. That is what Israel is waiting for, and that's the guy we'll read about next week. That's where we'll go next week. I hope you'll come back. That's when it gets good. For today, what I want us to do is respond. There's been a lot of really dark stuff that we've covered in this Empire Strikes Back part of the story. I want us to remember that there were some good things happening too at the hand of God. Even in the messy middle, God was at work. And so we're going to sing a song called More to Come that reminds us of what God did during the messy middle of your Bible. It has, it has words like God made giants fall. He brought down the walls of Jericho. He parted the ocean wide. God did all of that during the worst part of the biblical story. And yet the best line in that song is, in view of all God did, we need to remember there's still more to come. Despite all God did in the Old Testament for his people, delivering them, protecting them, it's nothing compared to what we'll see him do next week. When we learn about Jesus and we learn about the age of the church, all of this is so much more than what happened there. And yet, as great as all of this is, it's still nothing compared to what's going to happen in our future. And the chapter we call Shalom. And so you can stand. We're going to worship and remember what God has done in the past. And that there is still more to come.